Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Let's pray for the uh, message this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we can come together and worship you with songs and with prayer and with with taking communion together. Lord Jesus, what a wonderful, wonderful tradition that you have left for us, your followers, to come to the table together, to be united in faith and in practice, to lay our burdens and our sin before you and know that you are the one who redeems, you are the one who atones, you are the one who heals, and you are the one who forgives. And so I pray that that mystery of how you bore our sins in your body on the cross would be so tangible to us this morning. I pray that if there is anything that has been hindering us or blocking us from the fullness of your presence, that at the table today we are reminded that you are seated at the right hand of the Father because you willingly humbled yourself, taking the form of a man and a servant and even the form of a criminal as you hung on that cross, but then you were raised to victory, seated above all things, and now we are united with you. And I pray that that truth would become so tangible in our lives that we would know that we are united with you, seated with you above all things. And so, Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for what you accomplished on the cross. And I pray that this morning that our hearts would be captivated by your love. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to start today by sharing a little parable with you that I heard the pastor Francis Chan share a few years ago. And the parable goes like this. Imagine if a father noticed that his daughter's room was a mess. So he went to his daughter and said, before you go anywhere today, I'd like you to clean up your room. I'd like your room to look nice and clean. And the daughter says, okay, I understand what you're saying. I'm going to go to my room. So now imagine that an hour goes by and the dad goes to check on the progress being made. She should be nearly done by now. It's been an hour. And he looks into the room and the daughter is sitting on her bed. The room is completely untouched. It's a complete mess. And the father asks his daughter, well, what are you doing just sitting on your bed? And she says, well, dad, I loved your words about cleaning my room. I loved them so much that I thought that I would just sit here on my bed and meditate on the wisdom that you shared with me. Clean your room. Well, the room's not clean. So then the dad goes, and another saying, that's weird. Another hour goes by, and he goes, did you clean your room? And he's looking around, and it's a complete mess. And she goes, Dad, I wrote down those wise words you said. I took out my nicest notebook, and I wrote in my best handwriting, I wrote, clean your room so it's nice and clean. And I, I loved how it looked in that book. And now I'm memorizing those words. I'm just taking some time to do that. Then the dad notices that a bunch of the girl's friends showed up. And he goes in to see, why are her friends over here? If the room isn't clean, she shouldn't have friends over. And the daughter says, well, dad, your words of wisdom on cleaning my room were so good that I shared those words with my friends. And so we all agreed to meet together weekly to talk about what it might look like to clean our rooms. How great that would be. Now, of course, her room's still a mess. Her friends' rooms are probably still a mess too. But they're talking about it. They're meeting together weekly now. They've set up a time. They're going to meet, and they're going to talk about how it will look if the room was clean. 
Later, the house is quiet, and the dad goes in, and he sees all the girls now are writing in beautiful notebooks. Some are translating his words into Greek. <laughs> right? Others are writing commentaries about why the dad said what he did and the context of what was going on in the household at the time that the dad spoke these words of wisdom. And others are writing daily devotionals for those who want to clean their messy rooms. And meanwhile, the room is as messy as it ever was, maybe messier now. Now, the daughter and her friends can say that they believe the dad's words to clean the room are inspiring and amazing and full of wisdom and true but without action, it's all kind of meaningless, isn't it? And we can tie this parable to James chapter 1, verse 22, where he says, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Because I can guarantee you the dad would rather just have that room clean than have his words translated into Greek and commentaries written and, you know, all the rest of it. Now, a few weeks ago, back in January, I showed a picture of the KKK, and they were gathered in a church under a banner, Jesus Saves. And I talked about the history of the KKK and how they saw themselves as a Christian organization, that to be a member of the KKK, you actually first had to be a member of good standing in your church. And what was so disturbing about that knowledge is I was thinking to myself, you know, if one of those guys came into our church without the robe and the hood, right, just looking like a regular dude, and he said, I would like to become a member in this church, well, he could probably agree with our statement of faith. He would probably agree with our practice of prayer and baptism and communion. He would say all the right religious words. He'd probably come to our prayer meetings. And if we didn't, I don't know if the KKK has membership cards, but if we didn't ever see his membership card or if we never saw him put on the hood and, and the robe, we, we wouldn't know because he'd be able to agree with everything we say we agree with. Jesus is Lord, right? All the statements of faith that we make, he would be able to make those same statements. And so in that sermon, we said, well, there must then be a possibility that people can claim to follow Jesus and yet have hearts that are far away from him. And so I think we can also say that there's the ability to say that we believe in Jesus without doing anything that would make it evident that we follow him. Kind of like the girls in the bedroom. We love the idea of cleaning the room, but the room's still a mess. Sometimes we reduce our faith to simply believing the right things, right? Giving mental assent that our statements of faith are true. And then if someone agrees with us, yes, I do believe that what you say is true, uh, then we might consider that person to be a disciple. But there is actually a difference between a believer and a disciple. To use James one more time, when he's talking about faith without works being dead, he's, he's imagining a conversation where someone might say, well, you do your works thing, and I've got my faith thing, and they're both equally valid. And James is like, no, faith without works is dead. And then he goes on to say this, you believe that there is one God. Well, even, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. So what's James saying? He's saying, just because you believe, lots of people believe, how do I know that, that you believe in the right way? Well, it's by what you do. What you do has to match what you say you believe. And so James is getting across this truth that belief is no indicator that you obey or follow. Follow A believer can intellectually agree with what Scripture says, but their lives may not be directed by Jesus or oriented around him. Right? If it's just mental assent to, to kind of a statement of faith. You go, yeah, I believe that. Now I'm safe. Now I'm going to go do what I want. Greg Laurie puts it like this. 
every disciple is a believer, but not every believer is necessarily a disciple. Anything short of discipleship, however, is settling for less than what God really desires for us. And so in this new series, we want to examine what it means to really follow Jesus, to do what he commands and to orient our whole lives around him, not to simply do a, okay, check, I believe this, check, I believe this, check, I believe this, but to go, but what does my belief lead me to? What is the action component of my faith? Because faith without works is dead. Right? So we want to go deeper in our faith than simply saying, I believe in Jesus, but to say, I follow Jesus. I'm not only a believer in Jesus, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Now, a disciple means to be a student. And Jesus was calling people to follow him, not just believe in him. There was a, you might recognize this in the Gospels. There was a lot of people in the Gospels who believed in Jesus until Jesus did or said something they didn't want to hear or didn't want to do. And then... Maybe their belief didn't stop, but they certainly stopped following him. I think about this. In John's gospel, Jesus does this miracle of multiplying the loaves and the fishes, right? He feeds this vast multitude, this huge crowd of people. And then he crosses the sea to go to another place to kind of get away from this massive crowd. But the people are blown away by this man who can feed thousands with just a few loaves of, of um, bread and fish. And, and they follow him. And they want him just to keep replicating the miracle. Do it again, Jesus. Do another miracle, Jesus. And Jesus sees that all they really want are the miracle. They don't want him. And so he starts to challenge them. And he, he refuses to do another miracle. And then finally he ends the discussion by saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And that crowd of hundreds who followed him leave him. And it's so interesting to me because they know he has power. They've seen it. They've eaten of the miraculous multitude, and out of that crowd of hundreds or perhaps thousands, the only ones left are the 12. And what it shows me is that, I mean, these people believed in Jesus, they knew he had power, but they weren't willing to follow him when he challenged them. And as Jesus said to his disciples, he warns them, right? He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And he told his followers before he ascended to heaven, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we stop there. Okay, get them baptized. Good, good, they, they said a prayer. But then there's this other part. It says, teach them to obey everything I've commanded. That's an important part. That's, I think, sometimes maybe the failure of the discipleship process is we're content to simply get mental agreement. Oh, they believe what I, what I say they should believe. Great. And then there's this lacking component of teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. So the only way that we can really make disciples of Jesus is to be disciples together of Jesus, teaching one another how to obey Jesus and how to follow him with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. Right? We're looking to him constantly for answers on how to live, how to view the world around us, how to treat people that we come into contact with because Jesus is our savior, Jesus is our Lord, but he's also still our teacher. He's our rabbi. We are his disciples. Now, let's talk a little bit about what it would be like to, to be a disciple in the time of Jesus because to learn from a rabbi in the days of Jesus is much different from how we view the education system of our day. Jesus wouldn't be handing out textbooks, and he wouldn't be handing out exam papers. 
Jesus would call his disciples to follow him, right? Do you remember his call of the disciples? Follow me. And they leave their nets and they leave their boats and they leave their livelihood and they follow him. This meant that they would live with him every day. They would eat with him. They would travel with him. Basically, disciples would watch everything their rabbi did and learn from them not just the right interpretation of scripture, but they would learn from watching how their rabbi lived the right way to live in every circumstance and area of life. It wasn't just memorize these passages of the Torah and then show me that you know them. It was how do you treat people? How do you interact with people? How do you live? That's going to tell me whether you're really understanding my life. And so when we think of students, we kind of picture that modern-day classroom. But I think a better way to see discipleship is really as an apprenticeship. The rabbi expected that his disciples would do what he was doing. In fact, Jesus says that in John 14, 12. Anyone who believes in me will do what I have done. And even greater things, because even the rabbi would think, now these disciples will multiply. And they will do even greater things that I have shown them because there will be more as, as this spreads. But this kind of idea is a bit unique to us because modern culture focuses mostly on right thinking, knowing the right stuff. So we do have people in our churches who can say the right things but not do them. And in Jesus' day, learning moral principles, learning the right way to live was common practice and was just as important as knowing the right things. You proved you knew what was right, not by saying all the right answers, but by doing what was right. And people go, I see by the way you live that you understand what your rabbi is teaching. You look like your rabbi. You act like your rabbi. And so out of this teaching method of the rabbis, which was common to all rabbis, this wasn't unique to Jesus. This is what rabbis did in the time of Jesus. They gathered disciples, they followed after their rabbi, they mimicked everything they did. And so out of this teaching method, there was a a saying that started to come about. It was said that a disciple should learn from the rabbi by covering himself with the rabbi's dust. This meant that What they meant by this is that you would be following so closely behind your rabbi that as he walked, the dust would kick up from his sandals and stick to your clothes. So what they're saying is you should be following after your rabbi. You should be studying him so intently that even as he walks, you're so close, the dust is kicking up. You're watching everything he does. Not just learning right belief, but copying the way to live, learning how to live. How do you treat people? How do you uh, do this practice or that practice? Follow the rabbi. Watch the rabbi. And as you walked closely after your rabbi, you would change. Your heart would change and your actions would change. And so this is really our goal as we go through this sermon series, not to simply know more about Jesus, but to be covered in the dust of our rabbi, to let our hearts be changed by the teaching of Jesus and by the actions of Jesus. So we're not studying Jesus in this series simply for intellectual knowledge to know more stuff about Jesus. We're studying our rabbi so that we would have hearts be changed to be like his. Because this is my conviction all the time. I, I actually know a lot about the Bible now. Like, I've done a lot of studying. That doesn't mean I do it all. There are things that I'm challenged by because I read it in Scripture, but I don't do it. And so this whole series is for all of us to to see what Jesus did and to say, how do our lives line up with our rabbi? So to begin this series, let's just first understand what it means to be a disciple. 
There's a few commitments that we are going to need to make to our rabbi if we're going to learn from our rabbi Jesus. And the first thing a disciple must commit to is the process of discipleship. Learning is a process. Life transformation is not instantaneous. Lois Teverberg puts it like this, and this is sort of the hopeful place of beginning. Lois Teverberg says, our culture is fascinated with instant fixes and extreme makeovers. Extreme makeover home edition, right? One week, you get a mansion, and then it falls apart. But she says, but discipleship has always been about process. As Christians, we become addicted to stories of miraculous change, believing that if God is listening to our prayers, every sinful urge we feel will be healed immediately. I've met some believers who are like, I believe in Jesus now, why do I still struggle? Like, well, that's part of the process. It's part of the process, it's okay. She says, contrast this belief of immediate, instantaneous life change with what we see in the Gospels. Think for yourself how often the disciples messed up. One of my favorite stories is when Jesus has just been teaching about loving your enemies, doing good to them, not cursing them, and then a Samaritan village doesn't want Jesus to come in, and James and John are like, oh, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to kill those people? And Jesus sternly rebukes them, because I'm like, wouldn't you as Jesus be like, guys, what did I just say? Don't curse them. I don't know how to make this simpler for you. But the point being, they constantly are making mistakes. And Jesus never forsakes them. He doesn't kick them out of the group. He just says, I'm going to keep teaching you. Even on the last night that they spent with Jesus, before his death, after the Passover meal, his closest disciples, all Jesus says is, hey, could you stay awake and pray? They can't. They fall asleep. That's all they have to do, just stay awake and pray. But they can't do it. The Gospels record so many instances of Jesus instantly healing people's illnesses. But we don't have even one instance where Jesus instantly fixed an ugly habit in one of the disciples. Life transformation is a process, and that includes mistakes and setbacks. So if you're committing to the process of discipleship, you're not committing to a life of perfection. Right? You're committing to a process of continually being renewed by the Spirit continually having your mind and your heart refreshed by the word of God in scripture and by the Holy Spirit. So the disciple of Jesus will look at the world, they'll look at themselves, they'll look at Jesus, and then they'll begin to change how they think and how they act. And our benefit, of course, is that we now have the Holy Spirit empowering us and convicting us and allowing us to choose the way of Jesus over the way of the flesh or the world. And as we walk with Jesus and as we renew our minds with his teaching, over time we become more like him. And what it means to be more like Jesus is it means that we become more human. Jesus shows us how humanity was always meant to be. That's why he's the second, that's one of the reasons he's the second Adam, is he's showing us how humanity was always supposed to be. And so the more we become like Jesus, the more human we become, the more like us we become. But to follow Jesus in a fallen world with a, a nature inside of us that often desires the opposite of what God would intend for us, well, that means we have to commit to the process, to learn and apply what we know to everything we do and everything we say and everything we think. To be transformed in our hearts requires a deep commitment to the teacher. And this is the next commitment the disciple makes. It's a full allegiance to their rabbi. In the days of Jesus, disciples of rabbis were expected to be dedicated to the rabbi for a very long period of time. And to even see their dedication to their rabbi is more important than their dedication to their family. 
There was a saying in the time of, around the time of Jesus that went like this. If a man's father and his rabbi are both taken captive, the disciple should ransom his rabbi first. However, this deep commitment went both ways. A rabbi was expected to love his disciple and care for his disciple like his own child. Another saying of the day was this. If a disciple is sent into exile, his rabbi should go with him. So there was this mutual allegiance to one another that the disciple was fully allied to the rabbi, but the rabbi saw the disciple as his own child. And this commitment of the disciple to the rabbi was based on the story of Elisha and Elijah in the Jewish scriptures. Do you remember the story? Elijah went and called Elisha to be his successor, the next great prophet of Israel. But Elisha hesitated. He wanted to follow Elijah, but he wanted to go kiss his parents goodbye. Elijah then challenged whether Elisha was actually committed to this call. And in response, Elisha went and he burned his plow, he sacrificed his oxen, and he left what seemed to be a very prosperous home with a guarantee of making a living for the rest of his life to follow Elisha out into the desert to kind of be a prophet that nobody, I mean, he was respected, but was on, his, on the run and it wasn't a glamorous life. Jesus referred to this story of Elijah and Elisha. You might remember this story when a would-be disciple came and said, Lord, I want to follow you. Teacher, I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple. But he said, first I want to go and say goodbye to my family. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? The same thing that Elijah basically said to Elisha. He said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And we might see that response of Jesus to this would-be disciple as, as overly harsh. But this was actually the expectation of the day. That the disciple would be all in with the rabbi. They were expected to demonstrate full commitment because being with the rabbi is not an easy task. You'd spend days trudging between villages in the desert heat and depending on others' hospitality for the basic needs of life. It, was, it wasn't a glamorous life, it was a difficult life. Yet for all the difficulty disciples of rabbis might experience, the joy of learning and the joy of helping the rabbi who is transforming their life was worth every difficulty. The difference with Jesus is that he wasn't just a great teacher. He's the savior of the world and the very creator of all things. So if you're going to follow a rabbi, well, Jesus is the one you want to follow. Today, if we truly want to be transformed, if we want to leave the old life behind to find our new life in Christ, there's still that idea of full allegiance to Jesus, our rabbi. Our whole life must be spent following so closely to him that his dust sticks to our clothing and sitting closely at his feet to learn from him. Because life transformation happens only when there's a commitment to follow and learn from Jesus every day. Through scripture, we study his words and we study his life and we study the words and the lives of his disciples and apostles. We learn how to live and we learn how to draw close to God. And then from our study of all these things, our, our intellectual knowledge, we live out what we know to be true. We practice the teachings of Jesus in our everyday life. Let me put it like this. I know Jesus says, love your enemy. I still don't do it very well. And I, I get a little bit frustrated sometimes when people want to go into these deep theological dives on things, and I'm like, guys, we're not ready to dive deep into this theological matter. We still don't love our neighbors. I want to get the basics right, and I'm still trying to get the basics right. How do I love my neighbor? How do I love my enemy? How do I pray for them and do good to them? How do I forgive others? Those are the things that, that we need to live out that our rabbi taught. 
Lois Teverberg says this, the more we enter into relationship with Rabbi Jesus, the more joy we will experience. To become more like Christ will deepen our relationships and allow us to live more authentically. It might not always be easy, but it will certainly be good. And as we follow him, we find ourselves living with greater passion and purpose, experiencing a life of greater fulfillment. And the final commitment we make as disciples is the commitment to service. Serving the rabbi was seen as important because only by learning obedience could the disciple be corrected and learn reverence for doing God's will. Despite Jesus' own humility, he did have expectations of his followers that they would serve him, right? He says in one place, he says in Luke 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Because again, the expectation of the rabbi is if you're my disciple, you need to do what I say. You can't be a disciple and, and do your own thing. You can't be a disciple and go your own way. If you want to be my disciple, you've got to do what I say. That's what it is for me to be a rabbi and you to be a disciple. And the record of Jesus' life shows the disciples served Jesus. They went into town to buy food. They arranged for the Passover celebration. The saying of the day was this, all acts a slave performs for his master, a disciple performs for his rabbi, except for the untying of the sandal. And that's because untying of the sandal and washing of the feet was considered demeaning, and only the lowest slave would, would untie someone else's sandal. Let's just pause for a moment here and just ask ourselves, like, what are the commands of our rabbi Jesus that we struggle to follow in our lives? Again, remember, this isn't a condemning thing. It's, this is a life transformation. It's a process. So it's okay to admit, well, I'm not really... I don't really understand this part, or I'm not really doing well here, or I've really failed in this area. It's okay to admit those things and then say, okay, Jesus, help me. By your Holy Spirit, help me, right? But is it the command to love our enemies and pray for them and do good for them? Is it the command to forgive others as we've been forgiven? Is it the command to serve the poor and feed the hungry and care for the sick? Is it the command to go into all the world making disciples and, and sharing the hope that we have in Jesus? Like, what, what command of Jesus are we struggling with? When we let Jesus be a rabbi, we're always going to find areas in our life where we know what Jesus says and we agree with it and we think it's beautiful and true like the girl in her bedroom, but we're still not doing it. And we could maybe even teach other people, right? This is what Jesus says and it's beautiful and it's true and it's good, but the real question is, but are you doing it? And I find as a pastor all the time, I'm convicted of this. I say all sorts of things here that I think are true and beautiful and good and then I go, but I'm not doing that. That's the nature of the Christian life, is to be convicted. It's okay to be convicted. And then I have to go home and say, okay, Lord, that was a great message for me. I hope somebody else got something out of it too. But what do I need to do with this? Right? So remember that life transformation is a process. So be gracious to yourself and keep your eyes on Jesus. And Jesus walks alongside you in this process. And the Holy Spirit dwells within you. So you're not alone in this. But you've got to be attentive to it. Now, as we close here, I do want to mention this. In Jesus the rabbi, we do see something unique. So the way Jesus kind of taught his disciples was pretty normal. Like, there was a lot of rabbis who did what Jesus did. That's why everyone called him rabbi. They're like, oh, you're just another rabbi. But there is a uniqueness about Jesus. And I want to point out one unique thing, and then a, a few more. But at the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples, before he's arrested, do you remember what Jesus does? He wraps a towel around his waist just like a slave would do. And then Jesus began to wash the feet of his disciples. Do you remember that quote from before? That the disciples should do everything for their rabbi that a slave would do except the untying of the sandal because the untying of the sandal was so demeaning. And here Jesus shows by his life 
what he expects his disciples to do. He takes the place of the lowest servant and he takes their feet and he unties their sandal and it's so shocking, Peter says, oh no, no, Lord, I, you, couldn't, you couldn't do that. And when he's done washing their feet, Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord. Rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And in this foot-washing story, we see the uniqueness of the rabbi Jesus. Although many rabbis used object lessons and used their own lives as an example to their students, Jesus did things no other rabbi would do. First is this incredible story of foot-washing where he says, hey, the place of the lowest servant, be that. Always take the place of the lowest and serve one another in love. And then, as we talk about Jesus being the rabbi, we're trying to reintroduce the idea of needing him, of needing not to just believe in Jesus, but to follow him, to listen to him, listen to his words, and try and become like Jesus. But at the same time, I don't want us to miss the uniqueness of Jesus because he's not just another moral teacher. When I was in India, uh, we went to a Buddhist temple, and one of the, the sayings of the, of the great uh, teacher who built that temple was that, you know, I'm going to paraphrase here, but basically the idea was, you have sin that only you can fix. You must fix yourself. And I thought that's really interesting because Christian faith is you can't fix yourself. We need someone else to fix, to heal, to forgive, to show us the way, and that's Jesus. He's not just another moral teacher like that, that Buddha. He's not just another moral teacher who's a little bit better than other moral teachers. Jesus the rabbi is still the son of God who gave up his life to atone for humanity's sin and to make a way to come to God and receive eternal life. So as we close here, I'm just gonna remind us of the uniqueness of our rabbi. Unlike other religious teachers, Jesus was opposed to much of the religious structure of the day. He spoke against other religious teachers, the Pharisees and the scribes. He called them blind guides and fools. He accused them of making religion a, a burden too heavy for any man to bear. And in his most extreme act, Jesus goes into the temple with a whip and he flips over the tables and he knocks the coins off and he cracks his whip and drives the animals out. And he's, he's shouting, he's not whispering, he's shouting, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. We're gonna look at that next Sunday. The radical movements of Jesus. The next unique aspect of Jesus, the rabbi, are the miracles he performed. He healed so many people that in a couple places in, in the scriptures, all we can read is that when the crowds came to him, they were all healed. So we don't even know how many multitudes Jesus healed. But Luke tells us, when the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick were brought to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and they were healed. And another place it says, the whole multitude sought to touch him for power went out from him and he healed them all. So Jesus did these miracles. That's unique. Right? He healed the sick, he raised the dead, he turned water into wine, he walked on water, he cast out demons, he knew what people were thinking before they even spoke it. Jesus was empowered by the Spirit to do things no one had ever seen before. Yet as all good rabbis did, this is key, Jesus did these things to show his disciples what was possible when you walked, walked in the will of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus isn't the only one who did these things. Jesus sends his disciples out, right? Because again, discipleship is apprenticeship. So Jesus said, all that stuff you see me doing, healing the sick, raising the, raising the dead, casting out demons, preaching the kingdom, go do that. 
So it says, he says, go, announce to the people that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, cast out demons, give as freely as you have received. He sends his disciples out to do what he had done. And finally, we can't overlook the fact that Jesus claimed to be God. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you'd know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him, and you've seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and then we'll be satisfied. And Jesus replied, well, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe because of the work you've seen me do. Certainly a claim to be divine is unique, and that's what he's claiming here. And there's other places where Jesus claims this. And, and that's actually one of the things that the religious leadership really critiqued him for is they accused him of blasphemy. They're like, this guy says he's God. And he did. So if we believe this unique, these unique aspects of Jesus our rabbi, we cannot categorize him simply as a good human teacher of ethics and morality. I don't want anyone here to be like, yeah, you've really convinced me that Jesus is a good ethics teacher. I don't want to convince you that Jesus is a good ethics teacher. I want you to know that the reason you should listen and follow Jesus is because he's the very son of God. As C.S. Lewis put it like this, I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be either a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be a devil of hell. He says you must make your choice. Either Jesus was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him the Lord and God, but let us not come up with patronizing nonsense about his being just a great human teacher. He didn't leave that open to us, and he didn't intend to. And this is our great privilege, is that not only do we have a savior, not only do we have the most high God who came down uh, for us, and as we took communion together, that his body was broken for us on the cross so that we might be forgiven, but we get to keep following our risen and living Savior, our rabbi, our teacher, Jesus. Our privilege is that all the lessons that Jesus taught are recorded in Scripture. The words of Jesus are the words of our creator himself, telling his beloved creation how best to live. I'm gonna call the worship team up now as, as we close. But as we go through this series, my prayer is that we will commit to being the disciples of the rabbi, Jesus, to hear his words and to let his words shape the way we live and the way we think. Only by committing to be disciples of Jesus, the rabbi, will we get the most out of the words of Jesus. So my prayer as we go through this series, we're gonna look at Jesus flipping tables in the, in the temple. And we're gonna look at Jesus, the great servant. And we're gonna look at Jesus, the miracle worker. We're gonna look at Jesus, the weeping king who comes into Jerusalem. And what my prayer for us is that it's not just more information that we can go out with, but it actually changes the way we live and the way we interact with, with those around us and with our own selves. That we would commit to being changed in this place by Jesus. Let me pray for you and then we'll worship together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that the, the life of Jesus is recorded in the Gospels. And I pray as we study our Lord and our Savior and our Rabbi, that our hearts would be changed and renewed, that our minds would be renewed. And I pray that we would be known as people of hope because we live out 
the practices and actions of our rabbi. Lord Jesus, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that we would be able to do all that you created us anew to do, that we would do such wonderful and and amazing things in, in the places where we go that people will ask about the hope that we have. So let us be, as you said, the light of the world. Empower us to follow after you. Lord Jesus, there are so many things that distract us in this world. I pray that our eyes would be fixed upon you. You are the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let our hearts be changed and renewed. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let's worship together.